let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Some of you have asked where we're going next in our preaching series. And if you know, if you've been with us for a while, we typically do a New Testament book and then an Old Testament book and a New Testament book and then an Old Testament book. Well, we just finished Ephesians a few weeks ago, and we're looking forward to going to the Old Testament now. Uh, beginning in January, we'll uh, go back to an Old Testament book. We thought seriously about the book of Judges, but we are going to the book of Daniel. And we're going to spend um, some time there. I'm not sure how long, but we'll be spending some time in the book of Daniel, and we're looking forward to starting that in the beginning of uh, January. For our time together this morning, though, we, we want to go back to Luke chapter 1, and we want to spend some time here. It is Christmas, and there's a sense of excitement and anticipation in our home, I'm sure in your home as well, as you look forward to and anticipate the coming of Christ and celebrating that together as a family. Our kids are still counting days down, and it's this week, and they're super excited about Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and Certainly there's a sense of joy and expectation and excitement about that. But as believers, we love Christmas because it's about Christ. We love Christmas because it's about the birth of our Savior. And to help us truly appreciate what this time of year means, we're taking some time to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. This is known as the Benedictus. This is... Zacharias's song of praise, his prophecy about the coming of his son, the birth of his son, John the Baptist. You remember that John the Baptist, or Zacharias rather, was performing his priestly duties in the temple in Jerusalem and was greeted by Gabriel the angel and was told that he and his wife Elizabeth, who had no children, would have a child in their old age. And that child would be the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. It was almost too much for Zacharias to take in, and he really struggled to believe the angel as he told him this. And he asked for a sign. How do I know this is going to happen? And God made him mute for nine months, perhaps even deaf as well. The time came for John the Baptist to be born, and he was born, and suddenly Zacharias, his father's lips were loosed, his voice was opened, his mouth was, was, was open, and he was able to speak for the first time after nine months and recorded for us in verses 67 through 80 are the words that came forth from his mouth as his tongue is loosed and he's able to speak. He burst forth in praise and worship to our great God for the coming of his son, but more particularly the Messiah. I want you to follow along as I read these verses. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit and live in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is Zacharias' great hymn of praise in response to the birth of his son, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. It's a tremendous song, a song that's filled with all kinds of Old Testament allusions. And it shows us that Zacharias, a priest in the nation of Israel, one who studied the Old Testament for his life purpose and his ministry clearly understood what was taking place at that moment. It's tremendous. He understands all of the Old Testament promises and prophecies and covenants that are brought to bear upon this moment, this, this birth of his son. And what I find tremendous about this is he doesn't praise God as much as he does for the birth of his son as he does for the birth of the Messiah, which was now six months away. 
Oh, certainly he, he spoke about his son, John the Baptist, in verse 76. He says, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So certainly he's praising God for the birth of his son. But the psalm, the prophecy, the song is ultimately about the Messiah. As I said last week, in order for you to truly appreciate what he's saying, you have to go stand in Zechariah's shoes. You have to think like a Jew. You have to think like an Israelite who was waiting for the coming of Messiah. And so as we did last week, I want to take you back and, and make you stand in Zacharias' shoes. I want you to see what he saw. I want you to feel what he felt. And I want you to take you back, take you back 2,000 years so you can truly appreciate what would have been going through his mind and the mind of every other Israelite as they are hearing of the birth of John the Baptist and then the coming of Messiah. As I said last week, you need to understand the covenants. You need to truly understand what God was doing in the Old Testament through three specific covenants if you're going to understand what Zacharias is feeling at this moment. Three covenants, specifically the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. And you can see those listed for us right here in Zacharias' song. You can see in verses 68 to 71 a mention of David, his servant. That's a mention of the Davidic Covenant. And then you can see down in verse 72 through verse 74 the statement to Abraham that Abraham's covenant is now being fulfilled. He knew about the covenant that God made with Abraham. That's the second one. The third one, then, is the New Covenant. You can see it down in verse 77. To give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. That's the New Covenant. And so here's this old priest in Israel who clearly comprehends and understands these three covenants made by God to the nation of Israel. And he sees them all being fulfilled right now in this moment in the coming of John the Baptist and the Messiah. On the screen is a slide, as we showed last week, which kind of summarizes in visual form how Zacharias would have understood this. And you can see three of those covenants highlighted in red. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Those were promises that God made to the nation of Israel. Fulfilled, ultimately, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every Old Testament saint, every Old Testament Jew, every Israelite would have been looking forward to the fulfillment of those three covenants in particular. Now, there were other covenants. You can see a Palestinian covenant up there. You can see a Mosaic covenant. There was also a covenant that God made with Noah, never to flood the earth again. So certainly there were other covenants. But these three covenants in particular were God's plan by which he would bring about redemption to his people and to the whole world. So if you're an Israelite, any time throughout the Old Testament, you are looking forward to the fulfillment of these three particular covenants. On the right-hand side, you can see that these covenants would be specifically fulfilled in the kingdom which Jesus Christ himself would usher in. He would be the one who would bring in the, the fulfillment of all of these covenants. One thing I want you to notice. Do you see the church up there? That's us. And do you see, if you trace that line all the way back up, through the new covenant, back to the Abrahamic covenant, we're included. And if you're going to understand Christmas, you need to understand how God was working through the Old Testament, particularly the covenant to Abraham, then through the new covenant to bless you and save you. This doesn't mean that God's promises to Israel are now put on, are, are, are nullified. Of course they're not. You can see in the, in the right-hand side that God's going to fulfill his covenants with Israel. But right now in the church, we get a little sample of that. And we, the Gentiles, get to participate in the Abrahamic covenant through the new covenant. Now, next week, you've got to come back. Because next week's all about the new covenant. So I'm going to leave you hanging today. But today you need to understand the Abrahamic covenant. First, a review. 
of the three foundations for Zechariah's praise. First, number one, was the praise for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That's what we saw last week. So just a quick review. We saw in verses 69 to 71 that, uh, that Zechariah is praising God for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Look what he says in verse 69. And God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. So Zechariah is clearly understanding here that one of the covenants that God made with Israel was known as the Davidic covenant. And that covenant would result in a king, a ruler, and a kingdom. We looked last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7 at what was the Davidic covenant and that God promised to David a number of things. He promised to David a kingdom and he promised to David a son who would rule on his throne forever. This was an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom whose throne would be permanent. Remember what we said last week? That David wanted to build God a house, a temple, to house the Ark of the Covenant. And he goes to Nathan and says, I'm going to build this house for God. And God says to Nathan, no, wait a minute. Tell David he's not going to build me a house. He's not the one who's going to build this temple for me. That will be for his descendant. We know that to be Solomon. Solomon great, built that great temple. But God turned the tables on David and he said, you wanted to build me a house. Actually, I'm going to build you a house. And by that, God didn't mean a physical house. He meant a kingdom. A sphere of rule marked by peace and by righteousness. One who would sit on his throne forever. One who would reign over the house of Jacob forever. One who would have a kingdom which has no end. And we know that Solomon didn't fulfill that. Nor did any other king over divided Israel after Solomon. No one fulfilled that during the exile. No one fulfilled that after the exile. By the time of Zechariah, still no one had fulfilled it. And so Zechariah and all other Israelites at that moment are waiting for the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. That covenant that God made with David way back a thousand years before. And Christ came to be the fulfillment of that kingdom. He came to usher in the Davidic covenant. He came to be that king. The one who would sit on David's throne forever and ever. That was the great Jewish hope, that it would be realized in David's greater son, the Messiah. The problem is they rejected him when they came, when he came. So that covenant now has been put on hold. It's still an everlasting covenant, but it's going to be fulfilled with the nation of Israel sometime yet in the future. But this is what Zechariah was looking forward to. This is what Israel is looking forward to. This is what the nation's hopes are pinned on. The coming of the greater son of David who would be their king. This was the greatest moment in redemptive history. The apex of everything as they're seeing prophecy and covenants now be fulfilled in their nation. It's tremendous. Can you sense his excitement? Do you understand his anticipation? See, you have to think like an Israelite here in order to truly appreciate what was taking place at that Christmas 2,000 years ago. Well, there's another covenant that Zechariah refers to. And this is another foundation for his praise. So number two is praise for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Praise for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now understand, this is not your typical Christmas sermon. I understand that this is probably a little more in depth than what you would normally get at Christmas time. But I think if you stay with me and you grasp the meaning of the Abrahamic covenant, it will give a greater depth and a greater appreciation to your worship of Christ at Christmas. So stay with me. Let's look at this. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant it starts in verse 72 and goes through verse 75. Zechariah says, To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. 
Zacharias understands that there's another covenant that the Messiah would fulfill. It's the Abrahamic covenant. And I want you to understand, just track with me for a moment, the connection between these two covenants. So Zacharias understands that the Davidic covenant would bring the rule of Messiah to the earth. That, that Christ would come, the Messiah would come and sit on David's throne and bring the rule of the Davidic kingdom to the earth. He understood that. But he also understood that there's a connection to the Abrahamic covenant. And he understood that the rule of Messiah in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, listen, would bring the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham a number of things a thousand years before he promised David a number of things. And he promised to Abraham that he would have a nation come from him, that kings would come from him, that a great people would come from him, and that those people would become a nation who would then be a blessing to the rest of the world. That was promised in the Abrahamic covenant. And as you go throughout the Old Testament, it gets narrowed down closer and closer and smaller and smaller till you see the fulfillment of it. So listen to me. Here's how it's narrowed. God makes a promise to Abraham, and that promise is passed on to Isaac. That promise made to Isaac is passed on to Jacob. So it's not passed on to Ishmael, it's passed on to Isaac. And then from there it's passed on to Jacob, not Esau. And from there it's passed on specifically to David. One particular family within the tribe of Judah described in the Davidic covenant. So these are related. The Davidic covenant is an amplification of the Abrahamic covenant. Now notice verse 72. It says that God did this to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. God's a merciful God. God is a gracious God. God is a loving God. He's a compassionate God. And God knows that the world is caught in sin. It's caught in in transgression. It needs to be redeemed and saved. And so God in his infinite mercy picks a man by the name of Abraham to show him mercy, to start a covenant, to start a series of promises that would result in redemption and forgiveness and salvation. That's why God made a holy covenant with Abraham. Because he's merciful. Because he's gracious. Because he's loving. And that promise was passed down to Isaac and then from Isaac to Jacob and from Jacob to the nation of Israel and extended all the way through Israel to the world until it was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. So I want you to understand that it started with mercy. This covenant by God to Abraham was an outflow of God's mercy and grace to sinners. By the way, if you're here today and you're saved and you're forgiven, and you're redeemed, it's because of the Abrahamic covenant. It's because of the promise that God made to Abraham nearly 4,000 years ago. It all began with a covenant. It all began with a promise to Abraham to bless the peoples of the world through Abraham's family. And if you're saved, it's because of the Abrahamic promises. So do you understand that if you're going to appreciate Christmas and the coming of Christ, you have to plumb some of the depths of these Old Testament covenants in order to fully comprehend the realities of them. Well, let's look at them. That's all introduction. Go to Genesis chapter 12. And I want to take you back to the beginning. And I want to show you how God initiated this covenant with Abraham. And I want you to see that this is when God's mercy began. Actually, it began before that, but this is where it's kind of codified in a covenant made to a man by the name of Abram. Now, just to set the context in Genesis chapter 12, you remember Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything in six literal 24 hour days, He creates the world and everything in it. In Genesis chapter 3, there's a fall. There's sin enters the world as Adam and Eve disobey God. And and what comes into this world is now sin, which affects every single person. In fact, by the time you get to Genesis 6, the world's corrupt. 
The, the world is so filled with sin that there are only eight righteous people. And God says, I'm going to destroy the world, Noah. Make an ark. So Noah built an ark. Eight people are saved. The rest of the world is drowned and destroyed. That's in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Genesis 10, there's a genealogy. Genesis 11, there's, there's the, the incident at Babel, as the Tower of Babel. And at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis, you can see a genealogy. Now, maybe you don't think those are very interesting. I find genealogies pretty interesting. Because what you have in Genesis 11, starting in verse 10, is the record of the generations of who? Shem. Remember, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what you have here is a record of the generation of Shem. And if you trace it all the way down through the book of Genesis chapter 11, you'll see that it ends with a man named Abram. Abraham. That's why the Jews are called Semites. Because they're in the line of Shem. So here's the, here's the context. Now notice in verse 31 of chapter 11. It says, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. This tells us something about Abram, Abraham. He was from the city of Ur in the Chaldees. This is the, the old nation of Babylon, which today is in southern Iraq. So this would have been near the Tigris and the Euphrates River, and this was a pretty pagan place. We know that Terah, Abram's father, was a wicked idolater. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2 tells us that. It tells us that he was a, an idolater. He was a worshiper of other gods. And so Abraham would have been raised in this idolatrous environment. He would have been raised in, in paganism. And it was out of that place... And it was out of the city named Ur that God calls forth one man by the name of Abram to fulfill his promises and his, pe and his covenants with his people. Most likely, Abram himself was also an idolater, thoroughly pagan. And God says to him, Abram, I want you. I want you. And you're going to be the one through whom I'm going to bless the nations. You're going to be the one through whom I bless the world and bring through the Messiah. I want you to get out of there. And I want you to go to a place where I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. And God made a series of promises in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, which is known as the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, if you're a writer in your Bible, get your pencil out and write Genesis 12, 1 to 3, right, right next to that, Abrahamic Covenant. This is where God makes these marvelous promises to Abraham and promises to bless him. Now, let me read it and so you can see it. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Now you need to know that in that day it wasn't unusual to make covenants. People made covenants with each other and nations made covenants with nations. And so it's not unusual. It's not some strange event here that God is also making a covenant with a man named Abraham. And I want you to notice as well in these verses that this is an unconditional covenant. There are no conditions given here. It doesn't say, okay, Abraham, if you do this, then I will do this for you. No, this is an unconditional covenant. In fact, you can see it a number of times. God says, I will, I will, I will. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. This is an unconditional covenant made by God. It's a unilateral, one-sided promise of God to one man by the name of Abraham. It's not conditioned on anything. There were other covenants that were conditional. Remember the Mosaic covenant? That was a conditional covenant in the book of Exodus when God says, Israel, if you do these things, then I will do these things. And if you don't do these things, then I will curse you. You obey, I bless. You disobey, I curse. That's a conditional covenant, but not this one. This is an unconditional covenant by God to Abraham. Now, 
some people want to say, well, what if Abraham didn't go? What if he didn't obey? What if he stayed in Ur of Chaldees? And that's true. Uh, there's a sense that in that part of it, we would say it's conditional. If, if Abraham didn't go, then God would have did this through another way or another means. But beyond that, beyond his initial original condition of leaving his homeland and going to the promised land, the covenant is made without any conditions whatsoever. It's an unconditional, irrevocable, one-sided, unilateral covenant made by God to Abraham. Now, what does it contain? Are you still with me, by the way? Are you still tracking? Three promises that God makes to Abraham here. Number one, personal blessings. Number two, national blessings. Number three, universal blessings. And those are contained right here in the Abrahamic covenant. I want you to see, number one, first, personal blessings. Look at verse two. God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. God is speaking to Abraham at this point. He's saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless you abundantly, and your name is going to be great. And so there's an implication here that there's going to be descendants there's going to be people who come from Abraham who are going to make this great nation. Now remember, at this point, there's no nation of Israel. There's no Jewish person who's ever lived. Abraham's the first. There's a problem, though. Look back up in chapter 11, verse 30. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. pretty hard to be the father of many nations if you ain't got one kid, right? So th this is going to have to involve another conception miracle, like Mary and like Elizabeth. There has to be some sort of supernatural invention on God's part if he's going to fulfill his promise here to personally bless Abraham. And that's exactly what we see, and we'll see it in just a minute. So number one, personal blessings, descendants. A heritage of people or a seed of people who would result in a people group. Number two, national blessings. Verse two says, I will make you a great nation. I'll make you a great nation. Abraham, I'm going to make you into this incredible group of people. I'm going to prosper you and I'm going to give you a heritage. And you're going to receive national blessings in that I'm creating an entire new people group. Tremendous. Now, if you're going to be a nation, you need to have a country. If you're going to have a country, you better have some land. And we're going to see in just a moment that included in this national blessing is a promise to give Israel land. Number three, universal blessings. So he promises personal blessings. He promises national blessings. He, then he thirdly promises a universal blessing. You can see it in verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a universal blessing. God promises to raise up from Abraham a nation, and that nation would then be a blessing to the entire face of the world. Spectacular. Out of your loins, Abraham, is going to come an entire nation. And that great nation is going to have a great reputation. And they will be a blessing to others. And through them, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. This whole thing is going to come through Israel. Think about that. All of these remarkable blessings are going to come through one people, one nation, the Jews. That's what's taking place, isn't it? First five books of your Bible came through Moses, an Israelite. The prophets, part of your Old Testament, came through prophets who were Jewish. The covenants were given to the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people. The New Testament came through Jewish people. The apostles were Israelites. And so God is right here. He's true. He's speaking the truth that in Abraham's descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's exactly what's happened. We are blessed today because of the nation of Israel. We are. 
The prophets are them. The apostles were Jewish. The law, the word of God, the book that you're holding in your hand came through the nation of Israel. And so these are the promises. Personal blessings, national blessings, universal blessings. Seed, land, blessing. You need to remember those because we're going to continue to see those as we look throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But I want you to think about, is, uh, about Zacharias at this point. Think about what he's feeling. He is looking back to this passage right here in Genesis chapter 12, and he is thinking about all these promises that are ruminating in his mind about the, the, the land and the seed and the blessing. And he's thinking, Christ is coming to inaugurate this covenant. Well, let me survey this a little bit more with you. Genesis chapter 12 is not the only place this is mentioned. In fact, it occurs eight other times in the book of Genesis. We're not going to look at all of them, but let's look at one of them. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, I want you to see that these same three things promised to Abraham are repeated a number of times throughout the Old Testament. So Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Abram at this point, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give it to you and to your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Remember I said you're going to be looking for those three? Here's one, seed, personal blessings. People, descendants. Verse 17, arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. Remember the second blessing? Nation, a great people with a land. There it is. It's repeated. Go over to Genesis chapter 15. I want to take a few moments on this one because I think if you understand this, this will help you better understand this covenant. This covenant was introduced in Genesis chapter 12. It was repeated in Genesis chapter 13. It's actually inaugurated in Genesis chapter 15. So the covenant that we just talked about in Genesis chapter 12 was announced there, but it's not ratified or it's not approved until you get to Genesis chapter 15. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very Great. God says to Abraham, you're going to have a great reward. Now put yourself in Abraham's shoes. The reward that he knew that was coming was descendants, people, problem, no kids. Verse 2. Uh, Abraham said, um, uh, Lord, just a minute. Uh, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said to him, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. So here's what Abraham did. He said, um, God, this whole kid thing's not working out for us. So this guy, Eliezer, he's a servant in my house. Let's just um, assume that he's going to be the one that takes all these covenant blessings and it'll happen through him. Right, God? Uh, no. Verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham is corrected by God. God says, No, Abraham, it's not the servant in your house it's going to be the recipient of these blessings it's going to be your son your heir that will come forth from your body in fact by the way you're going to have so many descendants that it's going to be as numerable as the stars in the sky i looked up this week how many stars there are fascinating there are 300 billion stars in the milky way and there are 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. So I punched those numbers in my calculator and it said E. <laughs> it's too big. It's innumerable. 
You can't even calculate this. There's so many descendants. It's, it's incalculable the number of descendants that would come through Abraham and his offspring. Verse 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him. They cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. He said, What is this? Some wild game dinner? I mean, what's going on here? This is the way that they would confirm ancient covenants. So when you had two people or two nations that would enter into an agreement or a covenant with one another, they would actually cut animals in half, separate them, and walk between the animals as a sign of the covenant being confirmed. And they were essentially saying that if I broke my half of the covenant, then may it be to me like these animals, cut in half. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, why did a great sleep fall upon Abram? You know why? Because God doesn't need Abram to make this covenant. It's one-sided. So he puts him to sleep. Don't need you, Abraham. I don't need you to make this covenant because this was a one-sided promise by God to Abraham. And so he puts him to sleep, takes him out of the picture for a moment, and verse 13 says this to him. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. This is prophecy. God says to Abraham, oh, by the way, uh, this nation that I'm building for you, uh, they're going to go and be enslaved in another country, which we know is Egypt, for 400 years. Actually, specifically, it was 430 years. From 1876 B.C. to 1446 B.C., those 430 years, Israel was enslaved and mistreated under Pharaoh in Egypt. But God promised that they would be eventually back in the land, the, the, the very land that they're standing in when they're having this conversation. Look at verse 14. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve. God says, I will judge Egypt. And did he do that? Of course he did that. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Did they do that? Yeah, they came out with all the gold and the silver and the treasures of the nation of Egypt. And as for you, you should go to your fathers in peace and you'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That's exactly what happened. They were in the land from 1876 B.C. to 1446 B.C. God delivered them out of the land in 1446 B.C. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until 1406 B.C. And then they entered the promised land just as God said. Verse 17. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. That's God's presence. And if you think God is not a consuming fire, and if you think he can be trifled with, you think again because he is a consuming fire. He is pictured here as a smoking oven and a flaming torch. And he and he alone comes down and passes through those animal pieces signifying this was a unilateral covenant. Totally dependent on God, not on Abraham. Verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant. There it is. A covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So here is again is a promise by God to Abraham to give him the very land that his feet are standing on from the river of Egypt all the way to the great river of Euphrates. Now, what's the river of Egypt? It's not the Nile. It's actually another river that was on the northern boundary between Egypt and the southern part of Judah. That, that land, all the way from there up to the great river Euphrates, would belong to Israel, including that great part of the land known as the Fertile Crescent. You heard of that before? 
That great part of land where it just produces all kinds of crops and there's all kinds of natural resources there all would have been theirs under this promise and this covenant to Abraham. By the way, have you ever met any of those ites? You ever, you ever met a Girgashite? You ever have dinner with a Kenizzite or a Cadmonite? You ever met anyone like that? Of course not. It's not because you haven't been there. It's because they don't exist. And you know why they don't exist? Because God made no covenant with them. But God made a covenant with his people, Israel. And that's why they're still around today. That's why they're still a people. That's why it was so significant in 1948 when Israel became a nation. That's huge. It shows that God's promises are true. Even though the nation of Israel right now is on hold, it still shows that God's plan is to preserve his people, the nation of Israel. That's why Hitler couldn't eliminate them. That's why Stalin couldn't eliminate them. That's why the people during the time of Haman couldn't eradicate them as a people. It shows God's promises and his faithfulness to his people. He preserved them as a nation in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. By the way, that land that's described there, from the river of Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates, including all those lands of those other people, listen, Israel has never occupied that territory, ever. Even under the time of David and the great rulership of David and his great throne and his great dominion where they enjoyed the greatest part of their, their land, they never enjoyed the fullness of these boundaries. That's what Zechariah was waiting for. That's what they were longing for. That's what the nation was looking forward to when, when this covenant with Abraham would be fulfilled. And not only would they be this great nation and be a blessing, but they would have this land that, that God promised to them. They've never experienced it in the past. They're not experiencing it now, but they will someday in the future. When Christ returns and restarts his plan with the nation of Israel, and then they enjoy the fullness of these promises. Turn over to Genesis chapter 17, very quickly. This is another affirmation of the Abrahamic covenant, verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him and saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. You see, it's promised again. The father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I've made you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. When was that fulfilled? It was promised through the Davidic covenant and it was fulfilled in the first coming of Christ had Israel received their Messiah, but they didn't. So it goes on hold until Christ returns again as the promised king referred to here in the Abrahamic covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant between you and me and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Do you see it? People, descendants, a nation, a land, and an eternal possession that, that the Israelites will enjoy. God promises here that Abraham would be the father of many nations. That's true, isn't it? He is the father of many nations. He's not just the, the father of the Israelites. He's also the father of the Arabs. Because of his plan to try and have a child through Hagar, they had a son named Ishmael, who's the father of the Arabs. And do you remember his grandson, Jacob, had a brother by the name of Esau, who sold his birthright and also became a father of the Arabs. You want to know why there's so much conflict in the land? That's why. There's conflict between the descendants of Abraham, both nations, Arab nations and Israelites, from the same man. This was to be an everlasting covenant. 
an eternal covenant that God made with Abraham to forever be their God, that they would be his people. Well, very quickly, turn over to chapter 26. I want you to see that this covenant is also passed on to Isaac. Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. Now there's a famine in the land beside the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall give you. Sojourn in this land, then I will be with you. Here it is. And bless you, for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And I will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the exact same thing God said to Abraham. And here he's repeating it now to Abraham's son Isaac. So God is now the God not only of Abraham, he's the God of Isaac. Go over to Genesis chapter 28, verse 13. This is about Jacob. You can see in verse 10 it refers to Jacob. Verse 13 says, Behold, the Lord God stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. And your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God is now the God of Isaac and Jacob. It's a silver thread running through the Old Testament. Abraham to Isaac, not Ishmael. From Isaac to Jacob, not Esau. By the way, what's interesting about this, go to the last chapter, Genesis chapter 50. If you read these these chapters we're skipping over, these patriarchs did some very foolish things, didn't they? They sinned. They deceived. they, They committed some of the worst sins in the Old Testament. And you think maybe that would invalidate this Abrahamic covenant, right? But look, at the end of chapter 50, at the end of the book of Genesis, after all these patriarchs had sinned greatly, 24, Genesis 50, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Still in effect. The same promises. Fast forward 300 years to the book of Exodus. Same promises are in place. Exodus 2.24 says, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go fast forward another 100 years to the book of Deuteronomy. It's repeated there. Fast forward to the time of David. And even after the nation had sinned greatly, David still understands there's a covenant that God made with Abraham. First Chronicles 16, verses 14 to 18. David understands that this covenant is still in place. Go to Luke chapter 1. Fast forward through the whole Old Testament. And you come back to Luke chapter 1. And what do we see? We say the same thing. Israel expecting fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, means that the Messiah is coming. And Zacharias understands this. Verse 72, to show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Do you think Zacharias gets it? Oh yeah, he gets it. Still in place, still in operation. So, to imagine his excitement, imagine his anticipation, imagine the fact that you're sitting in his shoes and the realization of this covenant that God made with Abraham is now being fulfilled before your eyes. Do you see it? It's a monumental occasion. It's a tremendous event. And the the, the flood of emotions is just coming out of his heart. And he can't help but praise God in light of the fact that the covenant is being fulfilled. And I would submit to you, that's what Christmas is about. It's about the birth of the one who would ultimately fulfill 
the promises and the covenant that God made with Abraham. Unfortunately, you know how the rest of the story went. Christ came to be the fulfillment of this covenant, and instead of receiving him, the nation of Israel rejected him. They put him to death. They crucified him. They wanted the kingdom, the external kingdom that he came offering, but not the internal kingdom. They didn't want a heart change which would accompany the the blessings of the, the old covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. They didn't want that. And so they missed out on the fulfillment of Christ fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. So Zechariah has no idea there's going to be this long period of time in between two comings of Christ. But this is what the nation of Israel still has to look forward to. The day when they will be restored as God's people. Don't think that God's plan with them is done. It will be brought back again. Romans chapter 11 tells us that. It tells us that they will be regrafted back into the branch, into the, the tree that they were taken out of for a time. If you're a Gentile. You were temporarily grafted into the tree of God's redemption. And Romans 11 says that there's coming a day when God will graft Israel back into that tree of redemption. Say, so what, what does this have to do with us? Listen very carefully. Israel's rejection means your redemption. The fact that Israel rejected their Messiah means that, according to Romans 11, we have now been shown mercy because of their disobedience. Friends, that's that's tremendous. You're saved. And you get the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. You're one of those families that God chose to bless around the world and all the earth. God has chosen to set His mercy upon you. Why? In fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which was rejected by Israel in the first coming of Christ. Listen to Galatians chapter 3. We'll close with this. Galatians 3. Verses 6 through 9. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a child of Abraham. You're a son or a daughter of Abraham. Why? Because of Christ. Because of his fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, you now are a spiritual child of Abraham and one of the families of the earth, blessed through Christ. You're not a Jew ethnically. You're not a Jew racially. But you're one in the line of Abraham because of what Christ has done in fulfilling this covenant. That's what Christmas is about. The coming of the one who would usher in redemption. First to the nation of Israel, rejected by them, now to the Gentiles. Which means you're saved because of their rejection. And so at Christmas, you need to remember that. You need to let your hearts soar in wonder, love, and praise because of what Christ has done. Father, thank you for your rich Abundant mercy. Lord, thank you so much that that Christ has come in fulfillment of this covenant to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer, to usher in the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. We know that there's a day coming when when the nation of Israel will experience that, but that day is not now. It's, It's the day of the Gentiles. And Father, we have been those blessed abundantly by the mercy poured out on Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through David, all the way to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.